Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks. This week, we're going to dive into crypto in in the banking boardroom. Um, And joining me in the hosting seat today is my good pal, Dave Birch. Welcome back, Dave. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me. You're not in Woking today, where are you? <laughs> not in Woking. I'm actually in. I'm actually down in Australia today. Um, down under, mate. part of part of my Asia Pacific tour. <laughs> Your world tour. <laughs> <laughs> um, you just got done in Singapore, where you did an event for Huawei, uh, talking about the metaverse. Um, yeah. So, um, what's Singapore like? Is it is it coming out of the pandemic well? Uh, it was great. It was uh, it was hot. But actually, it functions. You know, I mean, people do what they're supposed to do. People wear their masks. Yeah. Everyone goes about their business. It it was great, and it was a, it was great to be at a big event. You know, listening to lots of different people, getting lots of different perspectives. So personally, I, I really enjoyed it. it. It's it's not exactly a mystery, is it? You know, you you, you look at Singapore and Taiwan and South Korea and um, Hong Kong and so forth, and they've got much lower mortality rates on COVID. And they just, it's just because they're disciplined in in respect to mask uh, compliance and stuff like that. But anyway, I don't want to get into it. They've been through it before. I mean, I remember a few years ago, Brett. Yeah, I was in Singapore when SARS was on. And, you know, as as a visiting Westerner, I thought it was crazy, everyone wearing masks, the guy in the elevator would come and wipe the elevator clean after you yeah. press the button. And the temperature. I thought that was weird. When you and now, <laughs> now I realize they were just so they've far learned. ahead of the curve, you know? Yeah, they've learned from it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Join, joining us from uh, our sponsor for today's show, FIS, is uh, Fies uh, Sindhu. He's the vice president for mid tier and community banking. Fies, welcome to Breaking Banks. Thank you, Brett. And also joining us from FIS is uh, Himal Makwana. He's the uh, SVP, Head of Product Strategy and New Initiatives. Himal, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Brett. Good to be here. And yeah, really excited to get into this topic. So let me just start off with, um, you know, uh, the, the big question on crypto right now, it, you know, we, it appears to have bottomed out um, in terms of the um, the the crypto crash is starting to recover a little bit, but um, now that we've had that, um, you know, how do you guys think that crypto is, um, you know, crypto's relationship to banks in the United States has changed? Is it given banks in the U.S. an excuse to say let's hold off, or is there still the same uh, pressure to to integrate uh, crypto and blockchain and other technologies like that in, into the banking uh, sphere? Yeah, I think that uh, you know, from, a, from a market perspective, Brett, there's still quite a bit of education going on in the space. You know, the regulatory climate in the United States is uh, ever-evolving uh, in the crypto space. There's a lot of legislation that's being explored uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the Hill in Washington, D.C. There's a lot of policy initiatives that the Federal Reserve is looking at, but from a banker's perspective, I think that they're looking at this through two lenses. One is 
be through the technology lens, right? The power uh, of digital money, uh, which is uh, you know defined as uh, well defined as you know, things like Bitcoin, stable coins, etc., which really represent a new format of money, uh, a programmable type money that can live outside of a bank account potentially and be programmed directly into a blockchain. The implications of that are very significant from uh, standpoint of payments, uh, lending, liquidity, and how all those activities uh, can work in the future. So I think that's that's one thing that bankers are thinking about and paying attention to in terms of how this technology could drive some incremental utility for their institutions. The other aspect of it that I think is important is how bankers and customers are engaging with these instruments today. There's tens of millions of Americans that are holding cryptocurrency today, and they're uh, and Bitcoin being uh, the largest one by uh, market cap perspective in terms of and in terms of number of holders and wallets. Uh, and those the customers that are participating in those instruments are acquiring them through non-bank channels. So uh, in some of the channels they're acquiring these instruments through are uh, let's say bank-like in terms of how they're uh, going to market uh, the emerging super app ecosystems. Uh, uh, to name a couple of channels. So banks are watching that and looking at how clients are engaging with these instruments and what the implications could be in the future for uh, clients that are engaging those, with those instruments and how they might be using them in the future, you know, in terms of they're looking at something like Bitcoin and how that might be used for payments potentially in the future. And if banks aren't at the table, that's that, that represents uh a threat and potentially mm. and if they're not servicing clients in that space. So that's my perspective from a market view, but I know my friend Himmel has a, has a broader lens uh, from our product organization. I'll, I'll let him comment as well. Yeah, it's a great question. Listen, I think um, if I split the banking segment in the U.S. between large and small, large being everyone from, you know, Goldman Sachs, Citibank, et cetera, you know, they've, uh, they've invested, um, you know, millions and millions, hundreds of millions, you, you would say, in, uh, in trying to hedge themselves against kind of being completely disrupted and disintermediated, right? And you've seen that through public investments in blockchain type companies. I think the other thing that they've done extremely well is um, also offer custody services through partners like Metaco, um, you know, Fireblocks and Copper, because, you know, they're sitting on a wealth of, you know, traditional assets in the trillions, and they know that this is a revenue opportunity uh, on getting custodial fees uh, as a result of that. So I think that's been a wave that's, um, you know, is, is largely in place. And I, I'd say that's quite mature and, and ever growing now in, in other parts of the world, including Europe and the UK. I would say the, the, the mid to smaller tier of the banks, I think from the conversations that we have with our clients and our partners, there's a lot of interest, right? But I think I would describe it personally as a bit of a penguin effect. You know, they're still waiting for one of the mid to small ones to kind of fall and fall victim before they all move in and nobody moves until everybody moves. So I think, you know, uh, regulation and, and, and two factors. One, what's happened in the algorithmic uh, stablecoin market. And then also, as you mentioned, Brett, being in a crypto winter, you know, not our first and certainly not our last. Has yeah, exactly. scared people off uh, from a from a from a regulation perspective. So listen, that's my perspective as I dissect the market between large and small. I think it's a complicated question. I mean, like in in my head, you know, these are completely different issues. So everything gets wrapped up as crypto, but cryptocurrency, or in particular, cryptocurrency and digital currency and digital assets, are really three completely different businesses. And banks, you know, ought to have completely separate strategies. 
I have always taken the position that digital assets and tokenization are much more important to the banking sector than cryptocurrency. The the crash has, um, you know, hopefully brought forward um, the 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 demands for sort of proper regulation, but you know, an awful lot of people have lost an awful lot of money, and I don't care about rich people. Digital currency, I think, is a little bit different because in most countries, um, digital currency has at least come over the strategic horizon. So the big central banks, like the Bank of England and the Fed, are saying we're going to have a digital currency. We're not going to have it tomorrow. It's complicated, and we need to work out exactly how it's going to work. And I, for for the big banks and the acquirers and the issuers and so on, it makes sense to start developing that strategy. They don't have to do anything about it tomorrow, but they do have to start developing the strategy. What's it? I think Himmel hits on the big. The biggest priority to me is tokenization and digital assets, because the tokenization of digital assets. If you talk to the serious finance people, their attitude is. Basically, as soon as the regulations in place, we'll tokenize everything, and they, and they mean everything, because they don't care about it from a sort of libertarian point of view or some sort of philosophical point of view. They don't. What they care about is trading assets without clearing and settlement. And to them, that's a much more liquid, much cheaper market. And the sooner they can do it, the better. And the demand for the kind of custody services that Himal is talking about. I think is going to be huge. No sane person wants to be their own bank. Like the idea that I'm going to store all these assets on my USB stick and, and wrap them up in tinfoil and bury them in a biscuit tin in my back garden, it's not going to happen. So, so him, I'll hit the nail on the head. The, the big strategy right now is tokenization of digital assets. And there's lots of roles that banks can play in that, like, like custody. Uh, so, I mean, the reality is, I mean, we talk about custody, but customers aren't exactly, you know, breaking down the doors of their banks to to do crypto. Yes, there is, um, you know, Coinbase and other exchanges who've done some, you know, some some value. To him, Al's point, you know, I'm going to be storing, I'm going to be storing digitized assets of all kinds in my 401k. And I don't want them in a, on a USB stick. Yeah. I want them in the bank. Yeah, exactly. So, Himal, is that um, you know, is that FIS's position that um, the banks lend a certain credibility to crypto custody that is what crypto needs, or, or where do you guys see it fitting? Yeah, listen, I do think so. I think you know, banks have. You've got to remember, banks, the oldest one, you know, Banco di uh, Napoli has been around since 1463. So you you could argue it whichever which way, but they stood the test of time of people parking money at an institution because they trust it, right? And I don't think Are you that, talking about Monte de Pasqua de Siena, 1472? Uh, no, Banco de Nap Nap Napoli uh, in, in, in 1463, uh, two years ago. There you ago. go. See, that, that's yeah. an older one than, than Monte older de Pasqua. Slightly older one. As of two years it's just, ago. It's, it's like nine years older. I, I There you go. Yeah, 500, <laughs> going on 560 years. So listen, you know, that, you know, coming back to the trust question, I think um, banks have obviously stood the test of time of all sorts of digitalization journeys and disruptions that have happened over the last few hundred years. You could argue, uh, is this time different? Is this is this a new wave of technology uh, that is going to be different this time? I'm not sure I'm in a position to answer that. What, what, what FIS would say is, look, we want to provide the infrastructure to banks, whether they're allowing, you know, retail customers to store uh, crypto assets or custody for institutional uh, players or offer 
you know, value-added services that are that are built on the blockchain. FIS certainly wants to be um, the the provider of the infrastructure, completely agnostic, by the way, to any blockchain, any digital token, you know, even any you know, even any protocol for that matter. So um, that that's what we would say we would have the right to win in, given our scale and how many of how many large banks and U.S. banks use our technology for day-to-day running of their business. Um, I, I think the other point. Uh, to kind of bring in is if we, you know, as 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 we see kind of demographics shifting and, and the you know the power of Gen Z and other generations to come, um, the brands that they trust and identify most with, um, I, I think banks are starting to recognize that not that may not be them for that generation. So you've you've always got big questions on top of banks' heads when they're serving retailers, is you know, am I going to get trust from that person to to do traditional kind of money, uh, let alone crypto or digital assets or anything else funky uh, in digital form, right, uh, in a day when we're all living in the metaverse or not. So I think those are some of the big strategic questions banks have to answer, and that will depend heavily on uh, which way their strategy leads them. Yeah, this fits into like, you know, broad community banking strategy as well, because if we look at the US market in particular, but it, it could be said of, um, um, you know, certainly uh, Western Europe, um, you know, Central Europe as well, um, more recently, and and to some extent uh, Asia. But um, you know, we've seen a fairly significant consolidation in the number of banks, um, and you know, we uh, have now seen since two thousand eight sustained decline in branch banking. So, from a from a positioning perspective. There's a lot of pressure on community banks to remain relevant. How do you think um, crypto helps them in that regard? Yeah, and I think it's a great question, Brad. So, you know, the threats uh, that the, the legacy traditional banking system are, 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 is facing are really multifarious in scope. And, you know, we talked about Bitcoin a little bit earlier and super app ecosystems. So if you look at Square and PayPal, they've got tens of millions of customers that are holding cryptocurrency through those channels, Bitcoin specifically is a dominant one. Square is exclusively Bitcoin. PayPal offers a mix, but a big chunk of their wallet holders are Bitcoin holders. And, you know, those ecosystems are are eating into uh, what has traditionally been the bank space, right, from a payment, at least on the retail side, right, from a payments uh, perspective. And, And we can see where the puck is going. Some of those companies... Uh, have been pretty vocal in terms of what they envisioned their long-term strategy was going to be in the retail space. So if you take a step back and look at the macro picture, roughly 25% of Americans are holding Bitcoin today. That means about 75% aren't. Of those 75% who aren't holding it, more than half of them would be willing or more interested in holding it if they could get it through their bank relationship, right, Uh, through a custodial wallet. So banks should really not be looking at the space as a, as a threat. Really, should be looking at it as an opportunity, especially it's an asset on, class, right? A, absolutely, and and potentially a payments instrument in the future, right? Uh, I make no moral judgments about Bitcoin or some of these other sure. uh, uncollateralized cryptocurrencies, but uh, one can't ignore what's happening in the market. It's not going away. Um, you can't ignore what the super app ecosystems are doing in this space. And from a community banker standpoint, they've got to think about. How they stay relevant to your point, Brett, uh, given the, the competitive pressures in the market, given the pressure on traditional income streams that banks have relied on in the past, like overdraft, uh, banks have to diversify and find new ways to engage their clients and monetize those client relationships in crypto. 
uh, crypto, stable coins, uh, again, under the auspices of what the regulators would, would allow the banks to do, uh, is yeah. an area that we think banks absolutely have to explore to differentiate their proposition. In the US, there's been this focus on sort of banking charters and banking regulation. I, I just wonder if any of the thinking is changing in that direction, because as an outsider, it's not obvious to me that that's the best way forward. And I'm, I'm very curious what Riaz thinks about that. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, not, none of the crypto companies in the U.S. are, they're not banks, right? Um, a number of the large custodians are not banks. They're operating uh, with money transfer licenses or they're operating uh, with limited trust uh, uh, charters in some cases. But, you know, what's happening in the U.S. right now is we have a lot of activity. I alluded to this earlier in Washington in terms of getting the banking system engaged in this process. And, you know, some people have uh, different views on what's driving that, but I think the, the the view in Congress and coming out of the, the policymakers seems to be around mitigating systemic risk. And I think, Dave, what you talked about earlier in terms of people losing a lot of money in the last few months in some of the more speculative, uh, all the whole crypto market's been depressed, but the more speculative instruments have been hit really hard. There, there's quite a bit of a pressure coming down, uh, you know, from the from the uh, Federal Reserve, the OCC, the Congress, the CFPB in terms of protecting uh, customers in this space and making sure the assets are are, are, are uh, regulated by the appropriate prudential regulator, whether it's the SEC or the CFTC, et cetera. I just think that, uh, you know, Europe has been a little bit ahead of the curve, I would say, in some respects in the, in, 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 in the space of crypto and embedded finance with the, with the, with the open banking, et cetera. Uh, I think in the U.S., you know, the, the uh, the prudential regulator is written for banking is really the OCC, and they've got a very strong, uh, strong hand uh, hold on uh, how things, how financial uh, uh, activities are governed and operated in the U.S. And I think I don't see that changing. I think it's there, there's just a really strong focus in the U.S. on mitigating systemic risk uh, in, in the financial services world. And I think what happened in 2008 certainly uh, is st- certainly uh, is still in many people's memories. There's a lot of pushback on that OCC sort of federal banking charter, isn't there? The sort of fintech banking charter. But well, you know, reading some of the got rooms, sued by the New York Fed, who didn't want to, yeah. who didn't want the fintech charter, which is crazy to me. Like the US is like the only developed market that doesn't have a fintech charter, but anyway. yeah, but that's because they, they that's because they were trying to make it a banking charter. Whereas my point is, if you look at something like the Indian Payment Bank or the European right. Payment Institution, like a specialized there's, there's a, yeah, there's a different framework, which because you're taking the credit risk out of it, you know, re- deals with a big part of that systemic failure problem. Yeah. You know, FIAS is absolutely spot on on that. It's, so, you know, maybe over the coming months, the pressure for regulation will grow. Um, but hopefully, you know, the US will will look at what's going on in some other parts of the world um, to 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 because I think that might be a more practical way forward. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think an area, the crypto area, is an interesting one to watch on this front because you know one of the really active uh, dialogues that's happening is around stablecoin regulation and who can issue right. stablecoins. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and stablecoins have you know they they have potentially great utility in the payments world potentially. So uh, uh, there, there's quite a bit of debate on this, and you know one of the policy positions being talked about is, uh, you know, maybe you don't need to be a fully reserved bank to issue stablecoins. We'll Absolutely. see where things land. Yeah. We'll see where things land, but it, it's it's part of an active dialogue that's happening uh, with policymakers. So uh, that could be 
it could potentially be an area where uh, you start to see the uh, U.S. open up a little bit in terms of letting fintechs uh, you know, participate in these instruments more actively uh, under the auspices of a potential regulator. Well, as you indicated, Fiaz and Dave, as also, it, it, you know, when we talk about programmable money, smart contracts, and the autonomous world of the 21st century economies, um, you know, we are going to need either stable coins, crypto tokens, or CBDCs. Um, and so if the US is not going to develop its own CBDCs, they need to let the brakes off stable coins. Otherwise, you know, the E1 and other um, CBDCs like that could take the U.S.'s lunch, particularly if China, you know, applies the E1 to, like, supply chain automation on the Belt and Road. But, Dave, yeah, you agree? Well, or? to Fiaz's point, you know, because th there is evidence that the, the regulators are walking back a little from the idea that the stablecoin issuers have to be banks. So if, if the stablecoin issuers have their own regulatory category, which is basically you can you can do what you like as long as you're 100% backed by high quality liquid assets then i don't see what's wrong with ford issuing a ford coin which used an automotive or apple issuing an apple coin or i mean great we we want to see competition and innovation in that kind of area um, but we just want to protect consumers and the way to do that i think is the european way with the payment with the electronic money licenses where you just yeah. force them to hold a 100% reserve end of story Himal, um, to, you know, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I, I wanted to focus on um, this portion of it. It, it. You know, how do we, if you're a CEO or a head of te technology for, for a bank in the US, where do you start? You know, what, what, do, you, what do you do to, to get yourself uh, and, the, and your institution on the crypto road? Yeah, yeah, great question. So I, I would say, listen, at the top of the house, CEO should appreciate money is being reimagined and it will unlock a broad set of use cases, right? They have to come to terms with that. I think the stat that comes to mind is, you know, crypto ownership globally, uh, a little bit more in the US, is about 6% of global internet population, uh, marking it at about sort of 300 million users. A lot of the... Um, a lot of the pioneers in crypto uh, and CEOs who have led the charge say that they definitely want to cross a billion users globally in the next kind of five to seven years. I think, you know, I think personally, my personal view is you only get there if the banks start adopting and offering this uh, as, a, as an asset class, as an investment and a retail offering uh, through traditional means. So I think, you know, they, they should acknowledge that there's ways to do it where, which can uh, extract the regulatory or the balance sheet risk so they can do it through partners, but still keep through their digital channels, the engagement of the consumer who will eventually go elsewhere if they haven't already. So I think that's the first place they should start on the retail side. For the institutional side, we've obviously mentioned the, the custody piece and the tokenization piece. That's a wave that's, you know, crossed critical mass. And I think, you know, that will just further adopt uh, through that area, and I think that's on a, on a on a really running, fast running train, which is really unstoppable at this point for good reason, right? The the technology and the fundamentals warrant that. So I would say, you know, I'd spin it to the retail and the institutional side, and that would be my advice to the, to the CEOs. Yeah, the only thing I would add, add there, Brett, is uh, you know I think bankers are going to have to learn an entirely new glossary of terms in the cryptocurrency and digital asset space, which sounds kind of daunting, but you know really this stuff is. It's not theoretical physics, right? For people who are in fintech and finance, a lot of the concepts should be intuitive. I mean, some of your listeners will probably have kids who are holding private keys on their phone, who are maybe staking digital assets or 
uh, even playing around with smart contracts and development tools are very easy to access and easy to play around with. Bankers, I think, are really smart people. I think they need to look to uh, empower and encourage their talented business and technology staff uh, to read up on this space. There's a ton of information out there. Uh, this is a board-level topic that most of the banks were talking Certainly, to. Yeah. And if it isn't a board level topic, it should be. No, every uh, time I present to boards, you know, they're they're going to ask about they're asking about what the future of this is and you know how they should be investing. So, on, on that matter, um, you know, if someone's listening to this program right now, they're a community bank, uh, um, you know, or um, you know, a, a bank in general, and they want to find out more about what you guys are doing in crypto. Where do we go? So uh, we're actually running a, a special education series right now on crypto. It's called Crypto 101 under our FIS Perspectives Initiative. Uh, so folks who are looking for more information, just go to FISglobal.com and uh, they can uh, register and get more information there. Great. Fantastic. Thanks so much for that, guys. Uh, you're listening to Breaking Banks and we'll be back shortly. We're very excited to announce our newest podcast to join the Provoke Media family, The Futurists. Already it's our fastest growing podcast globally, and we've had some phenomenal guests. Kevin J. Anderson, the author in the Dune Universe and creative consultant on the Oscar-winning movie of the same name. Dr. Harry Kluwer, the founder of Beyond Imagination, the creators of the avatar robot known as Beomni. Andrew Hessel, a synthetic biologist, PJ Manny, an ethical futurist, Dr. Roman Yaplonsky, Ross Dawson, and many more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the potential of our future, how futurists think about and explore the future, join Robert Tursek and I as we explore the world of tomorrow and the visionaries working to create it. The Futurist Podcast. We will see you in the future. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Parker Graham's path to becoming a fintech founder was full of twists and turns. He began his professional career as a tackle for the Baltimore Ravens before working as a private banker at Bank of Oklahoma. In 2018, Parker founded Destiny Wealth out of a bank run accelerator, 
But then he gave up the safety net of his day job as a banker to dive headfirst into pivoting the company, relaunching with new funding and a major bank client as Fanata in 2020. Fanata helps banks and credit unions personalize their mobile banking experience with financial journeys that increase engagement and create new revenue streams. In this segment, we'll dig into Parker's experience working with a bank as both a major client and investor, what it means to let yourself be vulnerable as a business leader, and much more. Welcome, Parker. It is so great to have you today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Amber. I'm excited to chat today. Awesome. I hear that we are taking time out of your company, all hands. You've got the whole team there in town. How's that going? Uh, it's been awesome. Today is actually the last day. So uh, it's it's the saddest day every single time we do this. We do this on a, on a quarterly basis. And um, on Fridays, everybody uh, leaves and goes back to their respective places. Uh, so we had our last team event last night um, and got to hang out and have fun, eat great food, just kind of the, the thing that we always get to do throughout the week when they're all here. So, yeah. Very cool. I hope everyone had a good send off and safe travels back home. And and where are you guys based, Parker? So the company is headquartered in Kansas City, uh, actually a suburb of, of Kansas City, Kansas called Overland Park. Um, so that's where the company's headquartered. There's a couple of us uh, here in the Kansas City metro area, which is awesome. Uh, but actually, we are a fully remote company. So while we do have a, a little like co-working space office, uh, the majority of our company is actually all across the country, which is really cool. Everywhere from Portland, Oregon, down to Texas, out to New York. So we kind of cover coast the whole coast. The yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. And so much easier to find the right talent when you can be open to anywhere. It definitely, it's, it's funny. I was talking about this today. It's, it surprised me when we went fully remote, how many people we, um, that we got that live in Kansas city. Like I was really fully expecting <laughs> to just have people all over the place and everything, but really like 50% of our companies, a little bit more than 50% of our companies is, is based here in Kansas city. So just kind of a fun little happenstance. That is very nice. And tell us about the company, about Fanata, just a, a brief little synopsis. Of course, we'll dig into more of what you guys do later, but uh, the, the elevator pitch, if you will, would be great. Yeah. So Fanata is an embedded banking technology company and embedded banking is kind of like the big buzzword in banking, just just period right now. But what that means to us is we're here to really help banks improve the digital channel uh, by providing personalized financial guidance and personalization features. Uh, directly to their customers that are using that mobile application or digital application uh, to really create revenue for the first time in that channel and to really improve the financial health of their customers and not just one group of their customers, but the entirety of their customer base. Uh, we've been working on that for about four years now. It'll be four years in September. So it's been a, a wild ride and uh, it's just exciting to hear the stories of, of how impactful we've um, been for both banks and their customers every day. So it's it's a lot of fun over here. That sounds super fun. And um, I love that you're a neighbor of mine. So I'm I'm a little south of Parker and his team here in Oklahoma. Yep. Um, Parker's alma mater is Oklahoma State University, where he played football. And he did a brief stint in the NFL before his career as a banker began. Um, so, so Parker, I have to ask, because it's one of those things that people are always curious about. Uh, is there anything that your football career taught you that you've carried on in the rest of your career, whether it be banking or here in Fanata, any lessons that lessons, attitudes um, this, that playing the sport at that level um, was able to give you? 
Oh my goodness. That is such a good question, Amber. I, I, you know, this, it's, it's a lot. There's just so many different things that you get. Um, cause you have to go through these battles. You have to go through these, uh, really trials of, uh, and tribulations just to be successful in sports, you know, at the college level, professional level, and all those things in between. And it's very similar to, to starting a company. You have to go through a really, uh, you know, sometimes a really long period of pain, um, for numerous reasons, and so uh, for me, I would say the biggest takeaway that I that I had from from playing sports just my whole life uh, is just having a really high pain tolerance versus others. Um, that's pain to withstand, you know, negative things that are happening, whether that's, you know, with the company or employees or, you know, just technology not working right. Just being able to handle that pain and really figure out the best foot forward, the best, you know, kind of next step, if you will, um, without getting too clouded in like the fact that you're experiencing something that just isn't much fun uh, in the moment you're experiencing it. Uh, and the same, the, the second thing I would say is just uh, is just teamwork, you know, being a part of a, of a team, you know, just in being successful any level you have to be able to adapt in different environments with different people with different skill sets and the cool thing about playing um, those high level sports is that you have to do that within seconds fractions of seconds like all at once operating uh, in unison and it's a lot like like building technology companies and and, and even in banking uh, especially where you're having to work with different people and different lines of business and figuring out how to help them and and help ultimately help customers it's just it's a cool uh, teammate atmosphere that you get to continue to have on uh, ongoing, even after my career was over. Uh, so I try to live in that uh, as much as I possibly can. Well, I have played a lot of sports in my day and those teams, I remember having such a great sense of camaraderie. So if you were able to build that kind of team, like a sports team within Fanata, that sounds amazing to have that kind of collegial atmosphere. It sounds like resilience really is what yeah. playing sports at such a high level seems to have imbued in you. So, yeah. Yeah. I think you have to have that. I mean, in any, any, uh, you know, it, I wouldn't even say really in building a company, just like period to be successful in anything, you have to be able to withstand the good days, withstand the bad days and um, kind of not get too high and not get too low, just kind of be steady Eddie in the middle. Uh, and that's just really helps not only myself, but like our entire team just get to where we are today. Uh, Cause there are really high highs and there's really low lows, um, but getting to that next step and again, doing the next right thing um, for our users and our customers and our banks uh, is just what brings us all together every day. That's really funny that you say that, Parker, about not letting the highs get too high or the lows get too low. That is almost word for word, the same advice that Jason Henricks, a, a um, CEO of Alloy Labs and yeah. obviously like the main breaking banks host um, yeah. and, and my former boss, when I, you know, uh, spun out Totem recently, like this week, uh, <laughs> during that process, there were a lot of times that things got super intense and like, I'm not a highly emotional person, but I was having a lot of struggles dealing with being on this constant roller coaster of change. Yeah. And, and like you said, you're popping champagne one moment and then <laughs> thinking the world's falling apart the next. And Jason told me the exact same thing that you just did. You just have to not let it get too, too crazy either direction. And that'll help keep you even. So, um, it seems like that might, we might've just unlocked a universal truth of entrepreneurship. <laughs> hundred percent. And I think that, you know, everybody's story is different, but the one thing that remains the same is that you're going to experience adversity. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter how good the good days are, you're going to experience adversity. And it's my belief that how you handle that adversity is actually what dictates success or not finding success, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So 
you also do a podcast for Fanata. Um, and I've listened to a lot of it. And something that struck me about that was that you guys are really candid, um, sometimes getting, you know, vulnerable, discussing things like founder loneliness and, and these great moments of celebration also, and just like the roller coaster of emotions, being open to sharing that story. So can you tell me a little bit about the podcast, why you guys decided to do it, what the plan is going forward for your next season, all that good stuff. Well, it's just so funny that you mentioned this because we had a good big discussion yesterday about what we're going to do oh. forward. <laughs> so this is perfect timing. Um, you know, the genesis of it really started in the sense that we wanted to tell our story. And we realized as we were talking to customers that, you know, tech companies are viewed a certain way, especially in banking. Um, a lot of companies are doing the same thing. And we really believe that we have not only a special company, but a really special, unique culture. Um, and so we wanted to tell that story. And we felt the best way to do that was via a podcast. You know, it's kind of like the, the number one thing to do post-COVID, right, is to start a podcast. <laughs> um, and we, we really wanted to do it a little bit differently. So we kind of did, you know, we have a great podcasting team. They've done an incredible job. It's a suit for as small of a company as we are. It's probably one of the most high quality podcasts I've ever listened to. And that makes me really excited. And what's the um, name? Uh, the name the of name our podcast of yep. is, uh, is once upon a startup, the phenomenon. Once story. upon a startup. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Keep yeah. going. So if you're, if sure you're listening, can... just go Google that or put it in your search bar on your Apple podcast, Spotify podcast. So yeah, we wanted to tell our story and we wanted to give people a peek behind the curtain as to what a startup really is all about. And it's not about the champagne pops. Those are fun and you get to have those too. Um, but it's really about bringing people together from all different walks and backgrounds and you know, cultural differences, and they've been a part of, you know, you know, good companies, bad companies, and trying to create a unified front to go take down a really audacious big goal. Um, ours is to create financial equality in banking. I mean, that's then that's what we want to do um, and create financial equality across the country. And so uh, to, if you kind of work yourself backwards from that, um, you really have to do things differently. And so we wanted to create a podcast that would go into the, the, the candid, you know, life of being in a startup and not as being the founder, because there's so many founder stories out there, which is awesome. Um, but we wanted to give everybody a look at like everyone in the company, not just, yeah, you have person. a lot of, you have a lot of teammates on the podcast yeah, from technical yeah. folks to marketing folks. Um, yeah curious what it feels like for them to be, um, on that side of the mic. Um, but yeah, there's a great variety on their voices telling that story. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's cool too for me because, you know, I get to hear their thoughts and like, you know, at different spots in our story, you know, I got to experience a certain viewpoint of it, but then they also got to experience a certain viewpoint and to get them to tell that story, just really cool for, for me and the, the listeners to get to hear. It's been a lot of fun. Cool. Well, so, I mean, I'm so glad that you brought up your mission, creating financial equality in banking. That is definitely a really big mission. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to kind of go back to the beginning because that's the mission now. But from what I understand, you guys actually started with a little bit different model um, doing the NBKC accelerator there yeah. in, in your area, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, yeah, so original, original founding story? <laughs> yeah, so the original founding the original founding story is I was working at a bank. I was at a bank in Oklahoma, a $40 billion institution, and had this, this idea um, of starting a direct-to-consumer company or direct-to-user um, company uh, called Destiny, no pun intended, with our head of marketing now. Uh, <laughs> but basically what I wanted to do is I wanted to help people in, in debt 
Um, I saw a lot of wealth management type of fintechs being created at the time. And I've just thought to myself, well, shoot, you know, debt's a huge problem. Why, why is no one solving that problem? And so that was the original genesis. And that's why I joined the MBKC Accelerator was to, to really help bring that product to life. Learn very quickly, as most entrepreneurs do, that ideas are a dime a dozen. And you've really got to focus in on what users want uh, and what your customers want. And so in 2020, we made a pivot to... Uh, we made a pivot and name change um, and took a little bit of our technology and what was what we were finding successful with users and basically double, triple, and quadrupled down on it. And that's actually what became Fanata and, and what Fanata is today. That's a great story. Again, resilience, right? Being able to pivot mm-hmm. is a part of that. Um, and I love that it started out with an MBKC accelerator. They're a really cool bank. And um, obviously with your banking background, you were probably you know, gravitated toward that a little bit. We'll definitely Absolutely. talk more about your work with banks here pretty soon. But I, I wanted to uh, stay in the past for just a little bit longer because sure. you have this crazy story where I believe that the story goes that at one point you quit your job Mm-hmm. And so that you could spend one or two months, I think, or maybe three months. And your, your only goal in life was to find that first customer. So can you tell us, like, take me back to that moment, how yeah. scary that was, how you decided that that was necessary. Like, what was that about? Yeah. So in 2020, actually, it's just another lovely COVID story. So in 2020, um, we were at, it was about the third quarter. So it's like August of 2020, I believe. And basically I had myself and two co-founders at the time who were no longer in our, in, in the business. And, um, basically we had $30,000 in the bank and we were eking by, we were, we were, you know, just, there was no progress happening on the customer front, no progress happening on the investor front. We all three had, you know, different consulting jobs to make our own ends meet. And I was basically sitting there looking at our current, you know, account that we had with our money in it. And it was just like, this is just not going to work. You know, we've got to take this, this money that we've been given by investors and give it our best shot. And if we fail and we, you know, the $30,000 disappears, well, at least we failed trying. Like I can't sit by and just let this eke out over a couple of months. Um, so I basically went to my co-founders and I said, all right, guys, you know, we're, we're at a crossroads. We need either an investor, or we need a customer to survive. And I'm the only one that can do both. So I want to take this 30,000. I want to quit my job. I want to use that to go find us one of those two things. And it was, it was, um, it was a very difficult conversation because, you know, they also wanted to be a part of the company. They also wanted to help it get to where it needed to go. But unfortunately the skill set that I had at the time, they were both two very good technical um, uh, product developers. Uh, it, that wasn't the skill set we needed. We needed the money in the bank, right? Uh, and you fast forward about a couple of weeks later after that decision, we had not only $150,000 in investment, but we also had our first customer. So, you know, good, lucky, blessed, you know, kind of whatever you want to call it, you know, it was the right call to make. And fast forward two years now, and that's actually two years almost to the month here in a couple of months uh, where we made that decision. And um, we're just in a completely different spot in our in our story. So it's pretty cool. That's amazing. You you went from zero to customer and investor in how many weeks? About three. Three. Oh my gosh, that's uh, that sounds amazing. I <laughs> other founders listening, that is not normal. <laughs> so far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that sounds incredible. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about who that first customer was because I know that that's a big part of the story of the work that you're doing today. 
Yeah. So that first customer, so the first customer is it's, it's, it's interesting because as, as you know, anybody who's working in banks, like projects are constantly moving, things are getting shuffled, budgets are getting moved. So that first customer is still a customer we haven't launched with yet, unfortunately, because of delays on their end with other technology. So we got that customer and we're still waiting to implement with them. Um, and since then we've gotten more. So it's just kind of interesting how, how these things shake out, but they were the ones that kind of got us to be able to unlock that capital um, and allow us to just keep surviving. And I've got a great relationship with them. And uh, it's interesting, the close, the, the the more real, and you know, you mentioned being candid on the podcast that we have, the more real and candid that I was getting in my meetings with individuals, both investors and with customers, the easier it was to build relationships and the easier it was to close deals. So I kind of learned all those things in that really short time frame in those three weeks. And it's just helped us get, you know, even, you know, kind of, unimaginable at that point where we are right now, but it, it really helped directly get us to where we are today. Very compressed learning. <laughs> Very compressed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> lots of, lots of calls. I would say I probably did. Oh my goodness. I probably did 75 calls in that three week time frame. Like it was, it was an insane number between the banks and the investors. Um, insane amount of, of, I'm very thankful that those people would answer my emails and get on a call with me first off. Like that was a huge blessing. Uh, but the more reps that you get, it's just the, e the easier it becomes, right? I mean, just, just sheer, you know, repetitions, um, is a huge component of it as well. Yeah. So you said calls between banks and investors today, you're one of your major investors is a bank, which makes mm -hmm. Fanata, I think really special. So can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with, I believe it's first United, a $13 billion bank in Durant, Oklahoma, actually close yes. to my neck of the woods. Yes. That relationship and story is just, it's, it's such a uh, incredible uh, chain of events. Um, basically I worked with one of the uh, senior level executives at the bank uh, was in Dallas, which is where he's officed at visiting other banks, pitching to other banks, basically doing a road show almost. Um, I do this thing where I kind of just drop myself into a town sometimes and just like try to get meetings while I'm there. And Ryan, uh, Ryan Sushala uh, is the is the gentleman at First United. And I basically cold emailed him or cold LinkedIn messaged him and said, hey, I'm in town. would love to catch up. We worked really closely together and just was hoping he remembered me and he did. And um, I went in and pitched him. And I remember going up to like the 10th level in the skyscraper downtown Dallas and looking out. And what was interesting is that the technology that we built um, or, or have built is really based on financial journeys of customers and like how to basically help, uh, you know, basically as a bank, help that customer get through their financial journeys. And it's, it's crazy because the, the elevator doors open. And the first thing that I see on the wall is a financial journey map. That's like in every branch the bank has. Wow. Was, that's it just stuck out really different. That's it really is, different yeah. for a it bank to, cool. I mean, a lot of the banks that I've worked with, they know that journey mapping is something that they need to do. Um, yeah. And it's like on a list somewhere, but it's mm -hmm. very difficult to get that done. That yeah. is incredible, actually, that that is something that was front and center as soon as you got off the elevator. And that is the just an ink that is just like an inch deep into a greater story of how unique of a bank first United Bank and Trust is. Um, you walk around the corner and they have all of these different different books in their lobby for their customers to just take that are financial health books and increasing your financial knowledge, like financial literacy stuff. And, you know, the millionaire next door, like all this stuff is just sitting there in the lobby for the customers to have. And that is in every branch for First United. Wow. It's just stuff like that. So I immediately thought like, wow, this is just radically different. And I go into the meeting and within the first minutes, 
uh, with the first like 15 minutes, I'm going through my pitches to the technology we built. And Ryan basically says out loud, Hey, are you guys raising money? And again, I was just kind of taken aback. (laughs) Uh, Yes. We're always raising money. Right. (laughs) Um, And he was like, okay, just keep going. And so I finished through and basically fast forward, uh, we had built something that they had wanted to build themselves for the last five years. They wanted a financial journey, um, you know, a type of technology in their mobile application. They wanted this idea around a financial health, uh, you know, scoring system in their mobile application. Well, it just so happens that Fanata has a financial health leveling system, which plays off of a score. And we have a financial journey manager, which literally guides a user through their financial journey, whichever journey they're on. Right. So all those things were found out within that first hour long meeting. And from that meeting to the next one, to the next one, it just was complete alignment across the entirety of the bank. And we had an event. We not only had a new customer, which was great, uh, but within six months, they were actually a full investor in the company as well. Let our, uh, led and fully funded our $3 million seed round. Uh, allowing us to kind of just unlock uh, a whole new ability for our company to output not only code, but also telling the story of Fanata, which you see in the podcast, uh, and then also just doing a really cool um, uh, partnership with them where we're literally building the technology directly with them and their users and their employees. So when we release new things to our customers that are outside of the bank, outside of First United, it's been tried and tested and it works which is just, it just creates this beautiful rising tides lifts all boats environment, in my opinion. Absolutely. And for future bank customers, knowing that it was built with a bank, I'm sure gives them a huge degree of peace of mind. Yep, absolutely. You know, we we used to get a lot of questions around, you know, security and compliance and, you know, all these things. And now that we have the bank behind us, we don't really hear those questions anymore because they know that it's already mm-hmm. been tested in an environment that's live with users and real money. Um, and the other kind of just novel thing is the fact that it makes money for the bank, right? Like it's one of the first, um, if not the first technologies that can be embedded in a mobile application and then start churning out revenue to kind of pay for the mobile application and then some. So it's just, it's just really novel ideas that we've had created and, and now have validated with this really big banking partner of ours. Let's let's dig into that a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit more about what these journeys look like and where the revenue opportunities come from those? Absolutely. So the, the financial journeys are really everything that your customers at a bank are experiencing, right? Like you've got folks that are just, first off, you have folks that don't know anything about what to do. They're just, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk to somebody. They don't want to go into a branch. They don't want to do anything but just sit in their, you know, like, unknown, but they do want help. They just don't know where to go. And it's embarrassing and it's tough. It's very different. Finances are just very emotional. There's a lot to it. Then there's users who want to build an emergency fund, but they don't know how to. There's users that are paying off debt, student loan debt, medical debt, you know, all those things. Then you have users that are building wealth. And then you have users that are building businesses. And at a bank and at a credit union, you know, like you have all those things, you have all those customers. And typically you have to pick you know, a a product that can only service one. Well, with us, we service all those financial journeys, all within one unique product. And within those journeys, you have different, what we call product conversion events where, hey, this customer might not have uh, an emergency fund and we can ask them to open it up in the application. And then we can actually open it and fund it in the application without the customer having to go to a different spot or call a branch or call a bank or anything like that. It happens all in that environment in real time. 
the other side of that coin. And then when you do that, right, you're able to create revenue based off of the fact there's a new account opened. Um, it's with a customer that's already bought in and we can fund that account. So all those things are happening at once. And really the second big one is with, you know, more liability or wealth accounts where you have a, you know, a customer that's already with you, but maybe they need a mortgage. Maybe they need a, you know, a, a refinance for their student loan or a credit card. Well, right now they're getting hammered from all of those fintechs that we've always heard the last couple of years, right? They're getting hammered to buy with those companies. And instead we can actually bring all of those capabilities directly in the app, regardless of you know, what your current capabilities are as a bank. Um, and by doing those product conversions along a financial journey, it makes sense to the customer because like, oh yeah, I do need that. And here's the reason why with a little bit of financial education baked in. And now you have that customer who's got a better product. Maybe they saved even, maybe, maybe we even put money back into the customer's pocket. Maybe we did a student loan refi where they saved a hundred bucks a month by doing the refi directly in the app. And even if the bank doesn't want to provide a student loan refi, we have the third party partners that'll come in, provide that product for the customer. And then we split that revenue with the bank. So basically the bank gets a double dip. They get non-interest bearing income and interest bearing income all within the same application. So that's a lot uh, to take in like, you know, in five seconds, but that's like a high level view of, of how that actually works. No, I think that makes a ton of sense. And anytime that you can take friction out of cross-sell, people's ears are going to perk up. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so you were a banker in, in a, in a past life. And so yeah. I'm really curious about what your experience working with the bank so closely has been like, did anything surprise you or, or, or were things a little bit different on this side of the glass or what was that like? Yeah. So I've always put, I've always made this joke that just, um, banking technology is just, it's awful. It's just broken. There's just so many things to fix. And I think the, the thing that we didn't realize, um, you know, cause being a banker and then leaving and becoming a technologist and then kind of coming back and selling to banks, I didn't realize like how bad it really is, like how difficult it is for a bank to make or a banker to make decisions that service specific parts of a, of a, of a company. And sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't And like the ramifications of that and the ramifications, the ramifications of being wrong and the ramifications of messing up are just so high. Um, and I think I've developed a lot of empathy for that. Whereas I just didn't have access to that knowledge before and it's difficult. And there's so many technologies being built every day. Like, how do you make those decisions? How do you pick the right one so that you can really ascend and, and, and help your customers? Um, and I think being a part of the bank and getting to see that behind the curtain view um, has just helped tremendously in the ability for us to, to help solve those pain points um, for those bankers. Awesome. Well, certainly so many elements of your founder story resonate with the folks that are listening, but we also have a really amazing audience of bankers here listening. So what would you like to leave bank leaders with after our chat today? Other than of course, like where to find Finata, which <laughs> we'll do at the end, but like message wise, um, what, what thoughts would you want to leave with our bank audience? Wow. Um, you know, I only get to pick one. That's going to be tough. Um, I think that the, the number one thing I would like to leave them with is or just around their customers. Um, there's a lot of help that technology can provide. Just, it's not even about Fanata, like put Fanata aside. There are so many cool founders building so many cool companies that can help do a lot of things at an institution. 
And I just would implore that if your digital strategy um, is not where you want it to be at today, if you talk to somebody like me or you talk to somebody who's like me at a different company, even if it, even if our product can't help you, we will help you find the product that will help you. Cause we all know each other. It's kind of like, it's just a little, it's yeah. a little group of people. It's not very big. Uh, Cause we're all a little bit, you know, we have a few screws loose. Like I mentioned pain tolerance earlier, right? Like we're all just kind of weird. Um, so we all know each other and just starting that conversation of how you can help your customers in that digital channel will help you tremendously in so many different ways. And we'll help you find those people, um, regardless of if you end up going with our product or not. And I will say to the founders that are listening as well, um, is I, and this is kind of what I say to everybody, like, if you have an idea that you feel that like that itch to go do something, go do it because you will be so happy. Even if when you go through those high highs and low lows, you'll be so happy four years later, five years later, 10 years later that you made that jump. You're going through a jump right now, um, which we've talked about. And it's just, it's the most fulfilling thing that you'll ever do. So waking up definitely feels different when you're working for yourself and for your people. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Parker Graham, CEO and founder of Finata, F-I-N-O-T-T-A, right? And yes. where can people find you guys? Uh, oh my gosh. You guys can find us on our website, www.finata.com. You can find us on our LinkedIn. We do a lot of fun stuff via our LinkedIn. Uh, basically, there's, you know, search bar Finata. Uh, our podcast is Once Upon a Startup. Um, and this just got released a couple of days ago, but we will be presenting at Finnovate Fall. So if you're in New York, excellent Finnovate Fall, we will be there and would love to chat with you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Parker. Uh, tell the rest of the team hello as you wind up your we'll all do. hands and um, hope you have a, a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us. Awesome, Amber. Thank you so much. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.